Well, good morning. So uh, out at our house, and we're about four miles, um, I guess, kind of straight west of here, we had 10 inches of snow Thursday. Is that pretty much what a lot of you had as well? Yeah, I checked several spots in the backyard, and it seemed fairly consistent where, where there wasn't drifting going on. I, I've always been a, a believer that, I mean, if we're going to have cold weather, we might as well have some snow once in a while. And uh, so I was glad to see, glad to see the snow. Um, I tried not to look out the window, though, when Colette was shoveling, because, you know, <laughs> that kind of ruined the effect of, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, was, that makes for a decent amount of work, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're here today. We are continuing in a series that we started um, at the first of the year. And the series is going to carry on until, uh, in including Easter Sunday. Uh, so uh, so it's, it's a lengthy series. So I want to jump right into it because I've got some things to talk about today that, that uh, there's quite a bit that, that I want to try to cover here. Um, and let me start off by saying this. One of the things that I have discovered over the years is that God is in the timing of things. And I, I am a firm believer of that, that when things happen, it's not just a matter of it arbitrarily happened that way. It's not just happenstance. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a whole lot more involved uh, in things happening and the timing of things. I, I believe it was evidenced in the start of this church. I believe God used it to... Uh, give give me um, some reassurance in knowing that God was very much in the mix of things. For example, one of the things that back at the tail end of 1994, when Colette and my boys and I, we moved here from Illinois, we left a ministry that we had been involved in out there for over 10 years. And we came here to start a church from scratch that, quite frankly... <clears throat> I'd never done before, and I never had any training in that sort of thing, and, uh, and so I felt like I was a bit in over my head, but that, that was, at that junction in time in my ministry, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a situation where if it materializes, if it happens, then, then uh, it's obvious God had to intervene and bail me out. You know, that, that was honestly where I was at at that point in time in my life, and uh, um, and sure enough, I think God did. Uh, one of the things I decided I was going to do early on, but I hadn't told anyone, was I was going to develop uh, at least one or two different prayer groups of people outside of this area that would be praying specifically. And so naturally, I thought about the church that I had been a part of for over 10 years in Illinois and how I was going to contact them and ask them to get together at least 10 people that would regularly uh, be praying about things, you know, specific things regarding the formation of this new church. And uh, um, like I said, I hadn't told anyone about that, but I was getting ready to do that. And then I got a letter in the mail. And the letter was from a godly woman in that church. Her name was Esther. And Esther was always uh, a go-to person because she was a real prayer warrior. 
And any time I had a situation during those 10 years that I was out there that I just really felt, man, I, I need some added prayer here, I would always tell Esther about it because I knew that she would take it seriously when she said she would pray about a situation. You knew she was going to do it. Well, anyway, this letter came from Esther. I opened it up, and I started reading, and she said, Brad, just wanted you to know that I have gotten 10 people to agree to be a part of a prayer group, and we are going to regularly be praying about this new church you're starting over there in the Kansas City area. But is it possible that you, from time to time, can send us an update so we might know some specifics to be praying about? You know, and I was just like, that's exactly what I was planning on doing, but I hadn't told anyone. But yet God laid it on her heart. And so what I did was once a month I sent a letter out there. This was before email and everything. I sent a letter out there listing either names or situations that I was dealing with and just asking for those folks to be praying, and they were praying. But you know what all of that did additionally for me? is it gave me that reassurance of knowing that God's in the mix as far as the starting of this church. And that was an exciting thing, the timing in which I received that letter. Another thing that I was um, up against at that time was finding a meeting location. We obviously hadn't started meeting yet. I had it planned that on April 9th, that was the Sunday before Easter, April 9th, 1995, was going to be our opening Sunday as a church. But this was still back before the turn of the year. It was November or December, somewhere back in that time. And I, I had been really scrambling, trying to find a location uh, that, as a new church, would be able to meet at. And I wasn't having any luck. You know, I knew that meeting in a school building would probably work best that way, you know, when there's adverse weather like snow and stuff like that, that part of it could be taken care of, and they would have chairs and things like that that we could sit on. And, and, uh, but I, I had checked with the DeSoto School District um, schools, which there weren't many in Western Shawnee, um, but I was shot down because they told me we do not rent to churches. Now, since that time, they've changed their mind, but, but they said no. And I even went to a school board meeting after they shot me down the first time and figured, oh, I'm going to make them shoot me down in person. And they shot me down in person. So that, that didn't work out very well. And I was, I was contacting um, the administrative office for the Shawnee Mission schools, and, and they had a couple schools available, but all of the air-conditioned school buildings in the area in which I was wanting to start the church, they were all taken. They had a couple that weren't air-conditioned. And I grew up in, in northeastern Kansas, and I know what the summers can be like. And I thought, man, that's going to be a problem, you know, because if you're just starting out in April and, boom, hot weather is going to be happening within a couple of months, um, you don't have people that are committed, you know, they're, they're not going to come back, you know, if it's kind of miserable and stuffy inside a, a room, a gymnasium or 
or cafeteria or whatever it is you're meeting in. But so I, I checked, but all the air conditioned ones were taken. So I was striking out everywhere I was looking. And during this time, every Sunday, I was, if I wasn't speaking for a CEA church, I, I was visiting an area church because I wanted to get a feel for what uh, uh, churches and newer churches and, and all in this area were like. And so I'd visited quite a few churches. And, uh, and on this one particular Sunday, I didn't have one already lined up that I was going to go see. So I decided, well, I'm going to go back to one I've already gone to, the Broken Arrow Elementary School, just a mile down the road here. And I had already been there once. And there was a small church that was meeting there. And I decided, well, I'm going to go back there again. And, and so I went and listened to the message and participated in the worship time and all of this. And afterwards, I was standing around just visiting with people. And their youth pastor came up and started talking to me. And, uh, and I gave my name and all, but I just didn't tell what my business was, you know, what, what I was getting ready to do. And uh, uh, so he knew my name, but as in the middle of the conversation, all of a sudden, like a light bulb went on in his head. He said, oh, hey, let me tell you before I forget, we're only meeting here two more Sundays because we have purchased a building down in Lenexa. And so in three Sundays, that's where we're going to be. Just want you to know so you don't come here and find us all gone. And I'm like, okay, so two more Sundays, right? You know, and he says, yeah, just two more Sundays. Well, guess who was on the doorstep of the Shawnee Mission School District's uh, office down on Neiman Road with a letter in hand requesting Broken Arrow Elementary School early the next morning? Yep, that was me. And I put the request in. And even though I had earlier been told that there was a waiting list and all this, but I guess doing it in person there, worked for some reason. Yeah, I know what reason, but it worked. And uh, um, I got Broken Arrow School. And some of you were a part of our nine years that we spent at Broken Arrow before we moved into the building here in the beginning of 2004. But that was another confirmation. God was involved in the timing of that. Another thing that happened around that time was the purchase of this property that we're on. We are sitting on 15 acres on this side of Johnson Drive. On the other side of Johnson Drive, the church owns four acres. It's kind of a net once you take easements out of 3.1 acres because there's a ton of easements over there. But anyway, we own a little bit of property on the south side of Johnson Drive. Um, here, here we were with a very small core group meeting in my living room on Wednesday nights. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, January, February, March, somewhere in that time, you know, leading up to opening Sunday, which was going to be the second Sunday in April. And, and I brought it up to the group. I said, you know, guys, I have no clue how much land sells for around here. And uh, did any of you have an idea? Nobody really had an idea. Uh, you know, without buying a house or something, just how much acreage costs. And so someone volunteered that they would check because they said they knew that there was a for sale sign sitting on this property and they would get an idea of how much it costs. Little did I realize that in very short order, um, I would be standing right out here in the middle of an alfalfa field 
on a Friday afternoon before our opening Sunday, so it was April 7th, Greg Snell, which a number of you know Greg Snell, um, he and I were out here, and we were meeting with the landowner, a farmer, and uh, a retired farmer, and he was sell it, selling the land, and, uh, and he, he was really motivated. He wanted to sell it to us because he just loved the idea of a church being here, and and he said, well, I need a third down, which amounted to like 70-some thousand dollars, and then, you know, you'll have to finance the rest. And, and um, I was just like, you know, because I, mean, I had spent all of my startup money, basically I had about $4,000 in the bank left. And, and uh, so, and I didn't even know why I was in this meeting to begin with. We hadn't even had our opening Sunday yet, and we're, we're in no place to be buying property, but uh, he had shown us the land, he had shown us a couple of the old farmhouses here that were being rented out, and, and so I went back, and that next Wednesday with the core group, I shared with them what the price was, and I said, you know, they're really wanting us to make an offer on this, and I said, so how about everybody in here prays about it this week, and next Wednesday we're going to pass a hat, and just throw in it a piece of paper with how much money you're willing to give, you know, to be a part of the down payment. And, uh, you know, and I wasn't holding my breath in this. Um, and that next Wednesday night, uh, what was thrown in there was something like 26 or so thousand dollars. You know, not the actual dollars, just pieces of paper with numbers. And when you added them all together, it was 26,000. And I thought, okay, well, it's more than I thought, but it's way less than what they're requesting. And so I called the realtor and I said, we've got a third of the third that you're wanting. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, and he said, oh, you don't want me to go. And I said, hey, what you do with it, it's up to you. But I'm just telling you, this is what our offer is. He called back within 10 minutes and said, the farmer has taken it. He, he agrees to that, and he knows that, you know, as you've explained to me, no bank will look at you cross-eyed because, you know, you guys are such a young church because um, by that time we had only met a month or so in uh, Sunday services. And uh, so the farmer even said he'll finance it for you. And I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. And everything within me was saying, timing is wrong. This isn't some, we're going to get overextended, you know, and I mean, that's what is going on inside of me. But, uh, but at this point in time, I felt like I'm just along for the ride here because God's moving and something else is happening. And uh, so anyway, we got the land. I was, opening Sunday was April 9th. I was signing paperwork on July 7th, and the church became land owners at that particular point in time. Five weeks later, exactly five weeks later, I'm contacted by a developer out of Tennessee. And they say, we understand that you have lately acquired four acres on the south side of Johnson Drive. We're interested in that. And we are not ready to buy yet, but we will pay you $1,500 a month for two years if you just promise not to sell that to anyone else. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> you know, 
I'm, I'm not the smartest guy around, but I, 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 I could tell that was a sweet deal. And so here we were. We were, the, the, the payment we were making every month was $1,447 every month. The rent we were getting off of these two and a half farmhouses that were right back here was $1,450. And this developer down in Tennessee, which just shy of two years, they backed out of the whole deal. But we almost got two years' worth of monthly payments of $1,500. They were sending a check for $1,500. So for almost two years, we were making a double payment, and we did not have to pull $1 out of an offering tray to do that. You know, and... and you know, and multiple times over the years, I've looked back on that. At the time that it happened, I was just floored by what was happening. And yeah, and I was that guy saying, oh, me of little faith. You know, because, because God clearly was in the mix of all of that. And he, even the farmer later said, well, if I'd known that outfit in Tennessee was going to come knocking. You know, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, the timing of all of that was just incredible the way that it worked. As a matter of fact, God does some of his best work with timing being very much a factor. Last Sunday, Kurt, uh, Kurt's message was on the Old Testament prophets. He touched a little bit about the New Testament, but mostly about the Old Testament. And the message of the prophets, you know, really centered more than anything else on repentance well, one of the passages on repentance that, that has always spoken to me um, in the New Testament is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And it certainly, you know, connects with what we're talking about here today. Peter said this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. He's talking in the context about the second coming of Christ. And it, and if you read the earlier verses, some people were kind of ridiculing the whole belief that the Christian church had in Jesus is coming again, but yet he hadn't come yet. What's the delay? He's dragging his feet. Has he forgotten? You know, they're kind of ridiculing that. Well, Peter says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And he goes on and elaborates on that a little bit more. But part of what Peter is communicating here is that, yeah, from our perspective, it looks like a delay. It looks like maybe God has forgot or something in regards to the second coming. But Peter goes on and explains, no, no, God's all about the timing of this. And he is you know, somewhat delaying the timing because he's wanting to give more opportunity for people to make that all-important decision of getting right with Christ. Here's one of my favorite passages when it talks about, and you'll, by the end of the message, you'll know why I say this is one of my favorites. When, when you're talking about the timing of things, Paul said this when he was in Athens, Acts 17 says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So the fact that you and I, we live where we live in the time that we live, that's all not just a matter of happenstance. God is in the details. And, and God is in the details to the degree that the timing and everything else, as far as your life is concerned, is that God is making it possible for you to be able to enter into a relationship with him. Because he's not far from you, but you need to reach out to him. So, so the fact that we are where we are and we live in the time that we live, none of that is an accident. As a matter of fact, you see all over the place in the biblical account how detailed God is with timing. In Acts chapter, or not Acts, but in Genesis chapter 22, we have that story that we talked about a few weeks ago about Abraham and how Abraham took his son according to the promise, Isaac, and went to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. Remember, he built the altar and he tied up his son Isaac, put him on the altar, and he took the knife, and he was about ready to sacrifice his son as God had instructed him to. But at that moment, God put a stop and said, wait, don't do this. Abraham looked up, and what did he see? What was one of the first things he saw? He saw a ram that had its horns caught in the thicket nearby. At that precise moment, so he unties his son, and they go get the ram, and they offer the ram as a sacrifice. That wasn't an accident, the timing on that. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah, we refer to sometimes as being the reluctant prophet. God wanted him to go to Nineveh, um, and Jonah had other, other plans. He went the other direction, almost exactly the other direction. He got on a ship, and he was sailing west. And there was a great big storm that hit. The sailors on the ship were getting ready to throw Jonah overboard, and when they did, what was out there in the water ready to receive him? Yeah, reread it. Jonah chapter 1, you'll see there was a big fish there, and it gobbled him up. And you know the rest of the story of that. Timing is everything. Acts chapter 8, we read about Philip. God prompted him to go to that strip of road between Jerusalem and Gaza, which is like, why would anyone go to that stretch of road? It was in the desert. There's nothing there, especially back in that time. There was nothing there. But yet this is what God wanted Philip to do, is to go to that stretch of the road. And so Philip did. And once he got there, along comes a chariot. And there's an Ethiopian traveling, you know, in the chariot. And he's reading. He's reading from the scriptures, the prophet Isaiah. And Philip hears the passage that he's reading. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so Philip asks him, says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? The Ethiopian invites Philip into the chariot. And from that passage, Philip shares the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because the death, burial, and resurrection, all that had happened, of which Isaiah had been prophesying. And the Ethiopian accepted Christ. The timing of that. You look in Acts chapter 16, you read about Paul and Silas. They go to uh, Philippi 
to, uh, again, for the purpose of sharing the gospel message. And they've got several things planned once they get there. But initially, they want to go spend some dedicated time in prayer. And so they want to go somewhere where they won't be distracted. And they figure, let's go down by the river bank. And, and let's just go down there and we'll find a quiet place and we can pray. And so Paul and Silas, they're making their way down there. And they bump into a woman by the name of Lydia. And next thing you know, Paul is sharing the gospel to Lydia, and she is baptized into Christ. She makes a decision for the Lord. Are these things all coincidences? Not hardly. God is involved in the details, and that includes the timing of it all. As a matter of fact, there is a book in the Old Testament and this is what that book, I believe, is all about. It is a unique book. It's only 10 chapters long, and it's even barely 10 chapters. It's more like nine chapters plus three or four verses. The 10th chapter is very, very brief. And uh, it, I'm talking about the book of Esther. And if it's been a while since you've read the book of Esther, I would like to encourage you to reacquaint yourself with that book. And if you have never read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, do yourself a favor and read that this week because you will be blessed by what you see. Because the reality is that all through the book of Esther, God's fingerprints are all over the place. The book, the book of Esther is recording um, a sequence of events that take place while Israel is in captivity. They're in exile in Babylon, which is you know, base, basically modern-day Iraq. And so here we have the Jewish people. They're in exile. They're a conquered people. And uh, the king uh, isn't getting along real well with his wife, the queen. And so he gets frustrated enough. He decides to have a beauty pageant. And whoever the winner is of this beauty pageant, they're going to become the new queen. And so this woman who is among the Jewish people in exile she enters into the beauty pageant along with many, many other people. Well, and she ends up winning it. Short story there. I mean, it's a little bit longer in the text. But, you know, she ends up winning it. She has a cousin, an older cousin by the name of Mordecai. And right around this time, Mordecai overhears a plot to take the king's life, to assassinate the king. Mordecai gets word to Esther about this plot, and Esther passes it on to the king. It ends up being investigated and found to be true, and these two guys that are a part of this plot, they are then executed, and a record of that particular sequence of events is recorded in the king's journal, the history of his reign. The story kind of shifts a little bit, and there's this fellow that's an up-and-coming star, within the Babylonian government. His name is Haman. Haman is, is a guy that has impressed the king in more than one way. However, Haman isn't a stand-up guy. He's a pretty evil guy, and he hates the Jewish people, especially Mordecai, because as he's kind of a rising star in the Babylonian government, one of the things he enjoys so much is everybody falling to their knees around him because they're fearful of him. But Mordecai never does that, never gives him that kind of respect because Mordecai has more insight into the guy. And, uh, and Haman just hates that. And so he wants to not only eliminate Mordecai, 
But knowing that he's a Jewish man, he wants to eliminate all of his people as well. And so he, got, he has this evil plan that as he becomes a little more powerful in the government, he's able to start putting things into place where there basically is going to be a national holiday that all through the kingdom, um, people are free to kill Jews. And there are no consequences on that particular day when that happens. Now, Esther is a Jew. The, queen, the king doesn't know that, though, because she's never revealed that. Mordecai, as soon as he finds out what is happening here, he gets word to Esther, and Esther is, is you know, fearful but also nervous about what she should do at this particular point in time. Well, anyway, the Haman, after, after he actually gets all that through as far as this national holiday of doing all that, he's feeling pretty good about himself, and he walks out from the king going to his home, and, of course, people are bowing and all this stuff, except for Mordecai, and it's just salt in the wound to him, and he's all the more determined. He gets back to his family. He shares the good news about, you know, things that are happening. But then he shares about Mordecai and how irritated he is at Mordecai. His family advises him to build this gallows to hang him on and then go ask the king, you know, and he'll let you do this. And uh, so they build the gallows. Meanwhile, that very day when evening falls, the king has a hard time falling asleep. And so he asked for a servant to read the record of his reign to him so he can fall asleep. You know, you don't need sleeping pills. All you need is a biography of your life, you know, to have that read to you and to put you to sleep. Well, that's what the king is thinking, you know. And so this guy's reading this, and, and it gets to the point where it tells about Mordecai uncovering the plot to assassinate the king. And the king suddenly stops the reader and says, did we ever do something for that guy? And the servant says, no, we never have. And the king's just like, ah. He said, who's out in the courtyard? And so the servant opens the door, looks out in the courtyard. It's early in the morning, but guess who's coming in? It's Haman. Haman wants to get an early start that day because he's going to ask permission to have Mordecai hung. And uh, so the servant says, oh, yeah, it's Haman out there. King says, perfect, bring him in here. Before Haman has a chance to say anything, the king, you know, asks him a question and says, what should I do if there is a man I want to honor in everybody's eyes? How could I go about doing that? Now, Haman, he's listening to this, and he's thinking, he's got to be talking about me. And so he answers in accordance with that thought in mind. He says, oh, well, you would want this guy to ride on one of the royal horses and have one of your most important officials in all of your government lead the horse through the streets, crying out to everyone, this is what the king will do to the man he wants to honor. And the king's like, I like it. I like that. So go get a horse and put Mordecai on the horse, and you be the guy leading him through the streets. Now, the king doesn't know anything about, you know, how evil and everything Haman is at this point. And, uh, and so Haman is humiliated. He does that, you know, announcing that all through the streets. And then as soon as he's done, he, he makes a beeline back home, and he is just... Um, hugely embarrassed, 
He breaks the news to his family, and they're all like, uh, this doesn't sound good. I don't think this is going in a good direction. And then someone comes and delivers a message to Haman and says, Haman, come on, you're going to be late. Remember the queen invited you over to eat along with the king, which he was really puffed up about that earlier. Now he doesn't want to go anywhere. But uh, he agrees, and he goes ahead and goes. And, uh, and it's basically, long story shorter, that's when Esther reveals the fact that she is a Jew and that Haman is an evil man and he is plotting to kill her and all of her people. And the king, you know, is just beside himself. There's a couple of other events that happen while Haman is trying to plead to Esther and he stumbles and falls on top of her and the king walks in the room right at that moment. I mean, just the timing of this stuff is incredible. And, and then the king is just like, no, you know, and, and he's so mad at Haman. And some servant says, um, he built a gallows out by his house. And the king's like, yeah, let's use it for Haman. Let's hang him on that. And that's the way the story ends up going is Haman, this evil man, is hung on his own gallows that he had evil intent with. And Mordecai is elevated, you know, in the Babylonian government. All right, that's a real rapid telling of the book. But there's a lot I skipped over that I hope you'll read this week to kind of drive home, you know, the points that we're making here today. But, but the point of, of it all is I want to say this. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God directly referenced. Nowhere does it say God or the Almighty. It doesn't say that. But yet, God's fingerprints are all over the place. Every page, you see God working in the details, orchestrating the flow of events, the timing of when things were happening. Timing is everything. We're at a pivotal point in time in our message series. So far, we've been mostly in the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of dipped into the New Testament now and then, but mostly we've been in the Old Testament. But as of today, we are bridging over and going into the New Testament. And this, I think, is a, a perfect verse to use in view of making this transition. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the right time finally came, that's where I got the title of today's message. When the right time finally came, God sent his own son. He came as the son of a human mother and lived under the Jewish law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might become God's children. That last phrase in verse 5, you know, includes, if you look in some of the other translations, adoption, so that we might be adopted as God's children. But you see, it's all a matter of the right time. When the right time had come, that is when Jesus came. Why didn't Jesus come 400 years earlier? The last book of the Old Testament was written at around 400 B.C. And then we have what's called the silent years, the intertestament period of time. And then the Gospels pick up with the beginning of the first century. So it was like 400, how come, how come Jesus didn't just come 400 years earlier? How come he didn't come 1,000 years earlier? Why was this time the right time? 
for Jesus to come? I want to take a stab at answering that question today. I'm going to suggest to you seven reasons why it was the right time. And some of these I'm going to go through pretty rapidly. Um, some of these are a matter of, of my opinion. Um, some of them I have very strong convictions about. Um, and I'm sure that there are some others that I'm missing out on. Why was it the right time? Number one, the law had done its educational work. If you were with us a couple Sundays ago, uh, maybe it was three Sundays ago, I can't remember, uh, we talked about um, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. The title of that message was The Tutor. And we were talking about the purpose of the law. The law uh, that was given to Mount Sinai was never intended to be an end in itself, as though by that we would be restored to a relationship with God. Because the law didn't have the power to do that. Here's a couple passages we touched on. Romans chapter 3 says, No one will be declared righteous, meaning right with God, in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, what the law was all about was opening our eyes to see the sinfulness of sin, to see that we indeed, to convince us that we indeed have missed the mark, which is what the word sin means, the definition of sin. Here's another passage, Galatians 3. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We don't live our lives under the authority of the Mosaic law that was given in Mount Sinai. No. That was all about leading us to Christ, preparing us and helping us to recognize our need for a Savior. And so then when the Savior came, we're no longer under that tutor. And so that's why, that's why I say the law had done its educational work. Number two, the Roman Empire was relatively peaceful, so travel was possible. During the intertestament period of time, there, were, there was several different uh, world powers. It kept switching hands. Some of them were very brief. Some of them might have been a couple hundred years long. But, but uh, um, it was a pretty volatile period of time. And so it really wasn't safe, and it hadn't been safe for a long time for um, Jewish people to travel to other countries. But that was changing very rapidly when Rome was in control. Yeah, I know Rome, some conflicts took place in order for them to conquer, you know, the known world at that time. But once they had it under their thumb, it actually became a, a pretty uh, peaceful place. And Rome, they encouraged travel because they wanted commerce to be happening among the different nations and people groups that, that they were now ruling over. And, and so uh, relatively, that's why I use that word, relatively, um, it is a peaceful time. And so for the first time in the longest time, people can actually travel, which creates a great opportunity for sharing the gospel, carrying the gospel message from one point to another point to another nation. The third answer to this, why was it the right time? Most of the world now spoke one common language, Koine Greek. 
Now, you can't lay all this at the feet of the Romans because the Greeks actually played a big role in all of this. In 350 B.C., still during the intertestament period of time, Alexander the Great, you know, he basically was conquering all of the world for the Greeks. And one of the things that he was leaving in his wake was a retirement, a requirement, a requirement that people learn Greek. There were two levels of Greek. There were the educated Greek and there was Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common man's language. And, and what it was that, that uh, the new world power wanted at the time is they wanted there to be able to be communication among all these conquered people, again, to encourage trade to be taken place. Um, and, and so when the Romans came along, they certainly weren't going to change that. They wanted to reinforce that because they, too, shared that same conviction. I don't know if you've tried to communicate with someone. You found yourself in a situation. They speak a different language, and you know nothing about their language. They know nothing about your language, but yet you really do need to communicate something important to them. Uh, it can really be frustrating. Several years ago, Colette and I, we were able to make a trip to uh, northern France. We went to Normandy and saw some of those sites, and then we had a car rental, and we drove across the northern part of France and went over to Germany. Um, but as we were going across the country of France, I developed a really bad sore throat. I mean, it was one of the worst sore throats I had had in a long, long time. It hurt to talk. It definitely hurt to swallow. Even drinking water just, just about sent me through the roof of the car. And, uh, and I felt pretty miserable. was taking lots of Tylenol, you know, to try to get through that. And finally, we come rolling into to one uh, uh, town there in France, and I saw a sign that seemed to indicate it was a pharmacy, and I said, I'm going to stop here see if we can get anything, even some kind of throat lozenge or something. And I went in there. No one in there knew English. I didn't know a word of French. And so I'm trying to communicate to the two women behind the counter, you know, that I've got a really bad sore throat and I need something for that. But, you know, I'm doing it all with gestures and facial expressions and all of this stuff. And, and I didn't feel that good either. And it was frustrating because it was really hard to communicate. A couple times they brought something over and it was just like it had nothing to do with a sore throat. And, uh, um, and I was about ready to give up, but it hurt bad enough. I kept trying. And then eventually, one of the women, she, she went over to this shelf, and this was an over-the-counter item, and she brought me this weird-looking little spray bottle, different than anything I've seen over here. And, uh, um, and I got to looking at it, and there weren't any English words on the box, but it had a couple of pictures, and so it seemed to indicate this is for throats. And so I said, all right. So I bought that went out in the car and just gave two squirts in my mouth, and it was like absolutely no pain at all. I mean, I could talk, I could swallow, I you know, felt great. And then about three hours, three, four hours later, it started wearing off, so I'd give a couple more squirts. And it, it, was, it was so good that we were still in France, but we were getting close to Germany. And I said, I want to find another pharmacy because I'm going to buy another bottle of that stuff because <laughs> I need to have that on hand. But, you know, it was so frustrating trying to communicate with someone that doesn't speak your language. And how would you share the gospel 
You know, you think about Paul and his missionary travels and, and all of this stuff. How, how were they going to go about doing that? Well, you see, the fact that now Koine Greek is kind of a universal language. Every nation that was conquered was allowed to keep their native tongue, but they were required to add Koine Greek to it. And so now everybody could communicate through this language. Here's another reason why it was the right time. During the intertestament period, synagogues came into being. Have you ever been reading in the New Testament Gospels and you come across something and you're thinking, huh, it's just speaking matter-of-factly about that, but how come I don't remember anything about that in the Old Testament? You know, and there's actually multiple things like that. Synagogues is one of those. It never references synagogues. It wasn't a part of Mount Sinai and what was the instruction given to Moses. In fact, you don't ever read any of the prophets talking about it either. You, just, you open up first page of the New Testament, you start diving into that, boom, there are synagogues. They're there. It's a thing. Where did that come from? Well, it happened, the development of that happened during the intertestament period of time. Jewish people basically um, had developed a kind of a rule of thumb that to establish like a synagogue, because you only had one temple and that was in Jerusalem, but you know, that had kind of been de demolished when the Babylonians came, you know, in the sixth century. Um, and, and so synagogues were kind of like mini temples, churches, you know, and, and the rule of thumb was any place that you had 10 Jewish people then that was a place that you could establish a synagogue. And the reason they settled on that number is that there were certain, certain Jewish prayers that necessitated 10 people. And so you have these little pockets, little communities of, of Jewish people that are scattered throughout the known world, and they're establishing these synagogues. Well, then you have people like Paul, as he was traveling around and sharing the gospel. What was his practice? Let me show you the answer to that. Acts 17, it says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as his custom was. So this is what he was doing every time he went into to a location that had a synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. You see, one of the common practices in synagogues back at that period of time is that if, if you were, even from out of town, a traveling rabbi, they gave you the respect to have an opportunity to have a mic or have a platform to be able to say, you know, teach whatever, whatever was on your heart to teach. And so when, when Paul would come into these locations, it was just part of their custom. You, would you like to say a few words? And would he, you know, I mean, he got up and he would share the gospel of Christ because he knew that these people were anchored in Old Testament scriptures, and so he wanted to explain how those were pointing to the coming Messiah who came and who died on the cross and was buried and rose again. And he would share the gospel message with them. And so, so having these synagogues around just created an open-door invitation to be able to go in various communities and do this. 
Number five, the Hebrew Scriptures, which is basically our Old Testament, had been translated into Greek, which people usually refer to that as the Septuagint today, in about 280 B.C. So this is another thing that happened during that intertestament period of time. Now, a lot of the known world at the time, they didn't know Hebrew. Hebrew was kind of a specialized language that just certain ones knew how to speak. But Greek, everyone was required to know that. And so everyone could understand it whenever the scriptures were being read, the Septuagint was being read. So again, we have another opportunity that the gospel is really going to be able to be spread in. Number six, Roman roads linked the entire Roman Empire. One of the things that the Romans are best remembered for, for the time of their reign as a dominant power, is the road system that they established. Their roads were second to none. Here's a picture of one of their roads in Jordan, not too far from a man Jordan. Um, this is Jeresh. You see up at the top of the photo some, some of the columns and stuff like that, some of the ruins. And we've had like 35 people probably in this church that have been there. And so some of you, you're looking at that and saying, oh, yeah, I walked right there. That's a Roman road. And that was laid 2,000 years ago. And look at the condition it's in. I mean, it holds up as well as 435 out here does. <laughs> Not hardly. <laughs> this holds up so much better. This is Petra, and it's pretty, a lot of shadows. There's some holes and stuff in, in the, the mountains back there. Um, it's uh, the city of stone. Uh, it's pretty impressive. This picture isn't that impressive. Um, as far as some of the buildings and everything carved out of stone. But you see some of the ruins uh, on either side of this road. And what's the road? Again, it's a Roman road that was built 2,000 years ago. Here's a stretch out in the country. And you see some ruins on the left. But yet, look at the condition of the road. Something the Romans built 2,000 years ago. The Romans did this so that they could move their military from point A to point B just like that, smooth and quick, but also for the sake of commerce, you know, so trade routes and everything would be well established. Well, it ended up being a great avenue through which people could carry the gospel message from one place to another place. Seventh um, answer to why was it the right time? Following Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people were more monotheistic. I, I think this is kind of a big thing. This is part of where my opinion enters into this. But I think this is a big thing. If, if you've read through the Old Testament, and I know a good number of you have, you know that like every other page, when you turn it and you start reading, what are they doing? They're falling into idolatry, Right? I mean, they just, every time they turn around, they're worshiping this God or that God or multiple gods. And, and yet, you know, the Jewish faith clearly is centered on there being one God. In fact, you go to the chapter following the Ten Commandments, and it says this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, this clearly is a part of the teaching back in the Old Testament. But boy, they kept losing sight of this. You know, it wasn't a conviction that seemed to have much staying power. 
with the Hebrew people for centuries of time. But after they had been in bondage for 70 years in Babylon, it was the Persians that came in and defeated the Babylonians, and Cyrus was the king. And for whatever reason, Cyrus took a liking to the Jewish people. And eventually it was Cyrus that allowed them to start going back to their homeland with his blessing, with his assistance, you know, financial assistance to go back. Well, one of the things that the Persians were known for was their monotheistic religion. It wasn't the same as, you know, what the Jewish people had, but yet still they did believe and promote the idea of there being one God. So some people say that some of the influence of the Persians played into this. But regardless, whatever the influence was that played into it, the people now were in a frame of mind where they were better set to receive the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. You've heard of Pharisees before? What book of the Old Testament talks about Pharisees? They're not there. That too is a result of this intertestament period of time, the silent years. And the Pharisees, part of the reason they rose up is because there was so much idolatry throughout the centuries preceding their existence, that they were determined, we're going to hold the line and we're going to stay true to Scripture. Now, they kind of went overboard with some of their legalism. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But, uh, um, but, they, but they did do a pretty good job of holding the line, you know, uh, in Jewish communities as, as far as um, there being one God. And so there, there was that um, setting that people were more receptive to the gospel message. You see, I think all of this contributed to Paul saying what he did in Galatians 4. When the right time finally came, God sent his son. It was the right time. And so Jesus was sent. I want you to know that God still works in the details and matters of time in our life. I very much believe what this passage is talking about, that God determined the times set for us in the exact places we should live. He's involved in the timing of our life. I think back to 1978, you know, when I was dating a girl that we had arguments with uh, or between each other, and whenever the subject of religion came up, we couldn't see eye to eye. And all other areas, we got along well. And I was getting so frustrated because she kept referencing the Bible. And I didn't know much about the Bible. It was right around that time, Memorial Day weekend in May of 78, rolled around. And Colette's family was going to Barnes, Kansas. Some of you know where Barnes is, north of Manhattan, a town of about 160 people. And that's where there was a family reunion happening. Well, I didn't have anything else going on, so I thought I'd tag along. And I went with them. Sunday morning, and they were all getting up, Colette's family, to go to a little church there in Barnes. I wasn't going to be left behind. I didn't know any of these people. You know, because no one else in the extended family was going to church. It was just Colette's family. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to tag along. Little did I know that Evelyn, she had a sinking feeling about that, Colette's mom. 
because um, she wanted my first exposure to Christianity to be a positive one. And she knew this church, you know, it had about a dozen to 15 uh, elderly people, and the preacher was like 90 years old. And seriously, you know, literally 90 years old. And the reason he kept preaching is because if he stopped, they were going to close the doors of that church. And he didn't want it to be closed. But she didn't want me to have that kind of an experience. But we go there, we sit down. He happens to be gone out of town visiting family. One of the professors from Manhattan Christian College is there to speak. And he speaks about the word of God. And he talks about how this is a letter from God, which is kind of like the ABCs to everyone else that was in there listening. But to me, I'd never heard anything like this before. It was planting seeds in my heart. And in the week that followed that, Colette and I still had some arguments. And I decided I'm going to go to Topeka and buy a Bible. And I'm going to start winning arguments. And uh, that was the early part of June. That was, the, she was more stubborn than me. But she, uh, the early part of June, July 13th of that summer, I gave my life to Christ and was baptized into him. I look at that passage and I claim that as my passage because God determined the time set for me and the exact places where I would live, where I would be. And he did this so that I would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him because he wasn't that far from me. I believe God is involved in the timing of the details of our life. And I want to challenge you today as we get ready to lead into communion. I want to challenge you to prayerfully evaluate what maybe is God trying to do in your life. Some of the events and happenings that have been going on in your life it's not just happenstance. God very much is up to something. Might we be tuned in and receptive to what he's doing? So as we prepare for communion, let's bow and pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. The opportunity to be able to be a part of this great grand story that's being told. And your involvement in our lives. And we thank you, knowing full well that there are so many things that we're not even aware of, and it probably won't be until we're in eternity that we're given 2020 vision and we look back on our lives and we'll be like, wow, I see the Lord's fingerprints all over the place. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for working to draw us closer to you. We celebrate Christ. Because at the right time, you send him into the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.